Amen. Hey, that's right. We are once again in our study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult. And we are on topic number eight. It rhymes with? Mormonism. Mormonism is absolutely correct, Bobby. I'll give you some gum possibly later. But that's right. And by way of recap, as you turn in your workbook... For absolutely no reason at all. That's right, if you want to do that, because we're not going to be into it tonight. We've already seen by way of recap, uh, it, the whole thing is started. Mormonism is based on a faulty premise, on a feeling, right? You don't gauge, gauge truth on a feeling, James 1, 5. Uh, plus, it was actually completely taken out of context, so it's doubly wrong. And then we took a look at the accounts. Well, which account? There's all kinds of different accounts, different versions, different visions, different appearances, different what? And, and it, none of it uh, makes uh, sense, and it even not only disagrees the account, but even the writings. The Book of Mormon doesn't even agree with the other writings, and we'll talk about one later about that uh, tonight. It doesn't live up to the archaeological evidence. There's zero evidence of any of their people, these weaponry, the monies, and all the things that they say. It, there's no evidence, not one shred. And then we saw, what does Mormon mean? We'll get into that a little bit again tonight. It means she-monster. It's like a, a term used for a spirit, a specter, a boogeyman back in the day, believe it or not. Uh, and then, of course, extremely racist. And then last time we saw uh, getting into the occult ties. We're going to see that again, Lord willing, tonight. And so we looked at the question, was Joseph Smith, number one, a martyr? No, we took a look at the historical record, and who was it that shot him? Mormons. Okay, shot him, and we'll see later. It's because he, a lot of it was because of him sleeping with their wives, and hey, go on a trip, pal, and well, that guy's gone, he takes his wife, and it's really bad. So anyway, so that's not true. He's not a martyr, okay, as they would say, a lamb led to the slaughter, right? Just trying to share the truth. That's not true at all, and that's historical record. Last time we saw in great detail, speaking of the occult, they are just, he basically... Uh, I used to say it was a good storyteller. It was not even a good storyteller. Basically, what we're going to see again tonight is Joseph Smith was a massive, massive plagiarist. Okay? He's just grabbing every kind of stuff from his things. And, and again, one of the big sources he ripped off from was Freemasonry. Even these so-called secret temple rites, there's nothing secret about it. He took them straight out of Freemasonry. He was a Freemason. His family was in Freemasonry. 1,500 uh, Mormons were Freemasons in Nauvoo in the original beginning part, and he just went through the Freemasonry ritual, and just a few weeks later, he comes out with his own ritual, right? It's absolutely crazy. This guy just took a little bit of this, a little bit of that, took this, and we're going to see again even more so tonight. And we're going to see he took a whole bunch from witchcraft, okay? From witchcraft, okay? It gets worse as you go, okay? It's like those people when they want you to say that, oh, chicken's wonderful, and you take that first bite and you go, man, something is wrong. But, but then you just keep going, and you keep going, and it gets worse. Next thing you know, Tom's in the hospital visiting you. Hey, Pastor Billy, let me give you an update on Bobby. He didn't listen, but... But it's just like that. It's bad. Worse you go, man. But let's take a look at the witchcraft. Okay, now, it wasn't just that Joseph Smith was involved in witchcraft. He was led into it, guess by who? His family. It was a family. It wasn't just involved in witchcraft. It was a family affair. Okay, and uh, we see that. And this is all recorded history. Let's, let's begin to take a look at that. Joseph Smith's family had been involved in witchcraft for generations. Okay, and it was well known that his family was well known for, here's their reputation, right? Everybody's got a reputation as a family. Well, look at that family there. Oops. The Smith family was well known for consulting the dead, using divining rods, scrying. Scrying, if you recall, is like when you look in a pool of water or something like that, and you get a, a, some vision, kind of like a, a, a crystal ball type effect, if you will. Uh, also using hallucinogenic drugs. It was the same thing that Nose Hair Nostradamus used. 
Okay, remember that? Okay, his family did that, scrying, that's in witchcraft. And they were known for that, and throughout the area, and so it only stood to reason that they passed it down to guess who? Joseph Smith, the son. Okay, but let's take a look before we get into witchcraft. Is that something we should be messing around with? Absolutely not. Open your Bibles to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, right? And uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 19. One verse, God's going down through a whole uh, litmus thing. He's given various laws. And uh, Gen- uh, Leviticus 19, verse 31, God throws this one out here. I don't know how much more blunt you can be. Uh, he clearly says, don't mess with this stuff. But verse 31, uh, here's what God says. Do not turn to who? Mediums. Or seek out what? Spiritists. And that's what his whole family was. As we're going to see, it was a family practice. They made money from this. Mediums, spiritists, Okay. For you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, fast forward a little bit, a couple books to Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy, the classic text there with 18. We've seen that several times in previous studies, but let's nail it in to this study, especially since we're dealing with witchcraft and Mormonism tonight. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse uh, 9. Once again, God's warning the people. Okay, and here's what he says. Verse 9, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the what ways? Acceptable ways? No, detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or cast spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Why? Because anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God is going to drive out those nations, etc., etc. That's why they're being judged. That's why they're being driven out. God says, don't do it. You belong to me. Don't you ever have anything to do with witchcraft. Well, that's what basically not only is the root and the family history of Joseph Smith, but it's also the means of which he supposedly translated the Book of Mormon. He's using witchcraft techniques. It's wrong all the way around. But let's, let's continue with that. Joseph Smith Sr., his dad, okay, was known for having visions. And we've talked about that before in our Hinduism study and New Age study. When somebody comes out, I had a vision from God. God told me to tell you. Run. Run. Just stick with the Bible. Okay, but uh, he was known for having visions and he never hesitated to share his experiences with others when he was given the chance. His wife, uh, Lucy, recorded no less than seven dreams that he had, Joseph Sr., from the time their first son was born. And it just so happens, one of those dreams from the dad was remarkably very similar to the dream that a main character in the Book of Mormon, Lehi, had uh, in the Book of Mormon. Hmm, I'm sure that's a quinky dink. Are you kidding me? We're going to see, man, even more so tonight. He's just taking this, taking that, taking contemporary, Freemasonry, witchcraft. I'll make this up. Guy slapped it all together. What a bunch of baloney, okay, as we're going to see. And he even got a little story from his dad. He's just making this up as we go. Now, the problem with Smith's family vocation, okay, vocation, witchcraft, is not only does obviously God condemn him, okay, but some of it was illegal, Okay, and we're going to see that he was actually brought to court for this, Joseph Smith. Okay, now in addition to the dreams of her husband, Lucy, the wife, Joseph Smith's mom, also wrote many of the uh, times that they, as a family, relied on this, a brack. Okay, you got a brack, what's a brack? Okay, that's those things that you build walls with when you're from Boston. You know, stack a brack, here, another brack, goes here, another. That's not what it is, Ruth, but I give you a... 
a golf clap there for that trying what that is. No, a brack. Uh, but this, they relied on a brack, this a brack, the Joseph Smith family relied on a brack, quote, while looking for direction in life. Well, you go, what's a brack? A brack is short for what we will say today, abracadabra. Abracadabra, okay? Abracadabra is actually an incantation word that's used in the occult. Okay, and that's what they were relying upon. And it's from her own words. Okay, and that, by the way, abracadabra, known in the occult, uh, is supposed to mean, I create as I speak. Okay, is what that incantation is supposed to be about. Sounds like word of faith, folks, today, doesn't it? Yeah, wait till we get to that thing later. Uh, while calling upon spirits for guidance in uh, many of the rituals they would have performed, circles were drawn in the ground using detailed instructions from two well-known books. So you and I would say, hey, I've been raised on the Bible. Well, Joseph Smith's family was raised on two occult books. The first one was called uh, Discoveries, okay, uh, Discoveries uh, in Witchcraft, okay, and the other one was called the Magus, or Magus, however you want to pronounce that, okay? Discovery in witchcraft. It's not spelled, it's the old English, if you want to look it up, not discovery with Y, it's I-E. Discovery, I-E, in witchcraft, okay? And uh, the Magus was the, the second one. The Discovery of Witchcraft book was more than 200 years old by the 1820s at the time of his family, but it was a staple, quote, in the lives of those practicing witchcraft. The circles included upside-down pentagrams. We saw that with Freemasonry. They still have it on their temples, even today, in other edifices, we saw. Uh, and markings of the Jupiter talisman. Now, what in the world is that? Do you remember that? That was the thing that they found on the body of Joseph Smith when he was killed. He carried around with him this Jupiter talisman. Jupiter talisman was kind of like a good luck charm for uh, wealth and fortune. Okay, but it wasn't just that. On his Jupiter talisman, they also found markings from that book called the magus the witchcraft book so he even had that on his possession when he died okay he didn't renounce any of this stuff okay the witchcraft that he and his family was involved in the book also gave specific times and this is the discovery witchcraft the specific times when a person should pray for a personal manifestation of the spirits right and it should be noted that the perfect time according to this book that Joseph Smith's family had on witchcraft, discovery, i.e., in witchcraft, of witchcraft. Okay, the, the perfect time, if you want to have a spirit appear, is at midnight on September 21st. That's the autumn equinox. And guess what? That just happens to be when Joseph Smith was praying, supposedly in 1823, and he got his manifestation. And according to the witchcraft book, that's the number one time you need to... Isn't that... Wow, and we're just getting started. There's so many weird connections with witchcraft. It's crazy. Now, to make matters worse, the Jupiter talisman that uh, Smith had in his pocket when he died, again, it contained drawings from the Magus. The book, the Magus, is nothing more, the second book, than a resource, a how-to guide for ceremonial magic, alchemy, astrology, and the Kabbalah, the Jewish Kabbalah, the mysticism. Okay, we talked about before in some of our other studies. Joseph Smith admits that he practiced uh, in the historical record, these questionable uh, practices, okay? So it wasn't like he was trying to hide from it. What we're going to see tonight is, guess who's trying to hide us from this history? Everybody. They're redoing the artwork, and they're trying to deny the historical archives and all that stuff. But let's continue on. So Joseph Smith and his father, again, this was a family involved. They passed it on to his son. This is the house he grew up in, but it was also a family practice, witchcraft was the Smith family practice. Now, they didn't say, hey, come to our house. We're witches. 
No, the term that was used back in the day, and the Mormons will even use this when you talk about his spurious past, okay? It was a, a practice called money digging, okay? But money digging, all it is, is a term to use occult techniques, witchcraft, to find buried treasure that's supposed to be guarded by spirits, right? So that's what his family was in. You call it money digging, and see, most people don't get it because it doesn't say witchcraft, but they used, that was witchcraft. Money digging was a person who involved in witchcraft, a spiritist, a medium, right? And, that, and they'll even admit that, okay? But they were noticing that, and they were involved with special ritual ceremonies that were performed for the purpose of obtaining buried treasure thought to be guarded by evil spirits. This was their family business, okay? Accounts of money digging might sound weird today, but it was big back in the late 1700s, 1800s. Uh, and as was documented, listen, this is from their own camp, LDS seminary teacher Grant Palmer documents that Smith's family's occult beliefs and practices, as well as their close associates, the whole family was involved in this. Joseph Smith Jr.'s role in the quest for treasure was especially important since he had another article from witchcraft that they used in this witchcraft technique, but witchcraft in general. And that article for witches to use, those involved in that, was called a seer stone. Okay, a seer stone. And they're trying to cover that up again today. We'll see that tonight. And what he would do is he would place a small so-called special rock, seer stone, also called a peep stone, okay, into a hat, and then he would pull up the hat to his face and block out all the light. And by doing this, he uh, could see supposedly supernaturally and would help those who were digging, okay, looking for treasure. By this technique, he could tell them where it was located, okay, by observing the spirits in his hat, the spirits that were guarding it, right? By the way, that's witchcraft. That's witchcraft, if you will, 101 back in the day. They would take a witchcraft stone, a supposed magic rock, they would stick it into a hat, and then they would put it up to their face so it would block out all light. And all of a sudden, you're starting to get visions. And that's what they used to tell, hey, Bob, dig over here. I can see this. And that's, what his, that's how his money, the family made a living. Okay, they made cash off of this. Now, do you know what technique he used to supposedly translate the Book of Mormon? The exact same thing. It's witchcraft. He used witchcraft to, oh boy, are they trying to cover this up. Okay, it's witchcraft 101. Okay, now, Joseph Smith Jr., again, himself admitted to being a money digger and that he and his family did this until at least 1826. Okay, on March 20th of that year, he was also, Joseph Smith, arrested, brought before a judge and charged as being a glass looker, a disorderly person, one who pretended to have the skills in the areas of palmistry, telling fortunes and discovering where lost goods might be found. And he used witchcraft the whole time. And according to the records, Justice Neely determined that Joseph Smith was guilty. It's a court record. They got it today. And then shortly after this uh, Joseph Smith, after he went to court and got in trouble for it, he, quote, discontinued money digging, but guess what he kept? He kept the seer stone. Okay? And it was with the seer stone that he claimed to find the golden plates and, again, to produce the Book of Mormon. But let's take a look at some of that historical record. Everybody knows, if you're honest with history, that the Smith family was involved in witchcraft. So let's take a look at our first video tonight. Numerous accounts from Smith family supporters, detractors, and neighbors 
describe a family that was very involved in magical practices, including soothsaying, rod divining, circle drawing, and most importantly, seer stones and money digging. While digging a well in 1820, Joseph Smith found what he believed to be a seer stone, a magical rock that basically worked like a crystal ball. It would be placed in the hat, then the user would place their face in the hat and magically see things. Using this method as a guide, money diggers would then hire themselves out to people to search for treasure buried by pirates or Spaniards on their land. Usually, however, the treasure was cursed and would sink back into the ground so that it could never quite be unearthed. Joseph Smith was well known in his community as a money digger. In fact, he met his future wife, Emma Hale, while on a money digging job. Her father did not approve of the marriage because of his dubious profession, so they eloped. LDS defenders used to contend that there was absolutely no credence in the accounts of Joseph Smith's magical career, even though his own mother attested to it. Smith himself insisted that they were just rumors that sprang up because he was once hired to help locate and dig a silver mine by non-magical means. But that changed in 1971, when documents from 1826 surfaced detailing Smith's arrest as a glasslooker. It turned out that the same man from the silver mine story that Smith had referred to actually testified in court that Smith had defrauded him on at least three occasions in money digging schemes. Now, LDS historians generally agree that Smith was involved in money digging, but defend him with the claim that this was culturally accepted and even respected at the time. This of course begs the question as to why then Smith was arrested and brought to court for practicing it. There are further claims that the Smith family did not consider these practices to be witchcraft, but rather as some kind of extension of their genuine Christian faith in the Bible. However, these dealings are nowhere to be found in the Bible as legitimate Christian practices. One year after his arrest in 1827, Joseph Smith claimed to have come into possession of golden plates, which he dug out of a hillside. Using his seer stone, he then translated the writing on the plates, and three years later, published it as the Book of Mormon. It is interesting to note that Smith never renounced any of the magical practices that he and his family performed. And what did he use to translate supposedly the Book of Mormon? A seer stone, witchcraft practices. Okay, and that's, that's the history that they are desperately trying to cover up. It's witchcraft through and through. In fact, it reminds you of this. Can you believe that guy? You see the picture of the guy with the hat? Light supposed to be shining, whatever. You know, it reminds me of the one time, maybe I'll get to this later when uh, we get to the part where it talks about witnessing, how to witness. And uh, I used to witness to uh, Mormons in uh, Sacramento, and I had this uh, one guy that came, and there was two elders, and then I, was, I think I was getting to the one elder, and he never showed back up, but they brought the elder elder, right, that last time, and they didn't come back after this. And, uh, but they, they were trying to bribe me. It was, it was sad. You weren't getting nowhere. Uh, but they tried to bribe me with riches. And again, you see the whole background. This is money, money, money. And this one guy, I kid you not, he's out there and he's going, he's talking to the, he's pointing to the elder elder who's standing there in this nice suit and everything, right? And he goes, do you realize that elder so-and-so, he owns 25 Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants? <laughs> and I'm going, dude, you have no idea. First of all, you're not going to bribe me with riches, okay, uh, to turn from Christ. Second of all, <laughs> you know, of all, Pizza Hut, maybe? No. <laughs> I mean, come on. I couldn't believe it. What are the odds, right? But then I got to thinking as I was watching that with the hat and the thing with there, maybe that's what they do with those Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets. 
but that's a joke. I'm joking. Let's move on and get serious. But it does make sense if you think about it. But anyway, so uh, witchcraft connection was known by early converts. Uh, but, okay, after this, of course, uh, so he didn't denounce it. You study the history. It's obvious. He, he's even in court records. He got in trouble. He went to court over this uh, witchcraft charge. And then early accounts, you couldn't escape it. Okay, and then that's when all of a sudden his encounter via, with the methodologies of witchcraft, all of a sudden with this Moroni thing, turned into not a spirit, but an angel, right? And that's when they began to start to kind of backtrack, and we better try to you know distance a little bit from the obvious witchcraft techniques. This trans, uh, transition, trying to make it more palatable of his whole account that was involving witchcraft, uh, was aided by the fact that Moroni... Again, we saw before, he's supposed to be a dead American Indian warrior, right? Remember, they're supposed to be uh, Mormons. They're supposed to be uh, the descendants of the American Indians, which there's zero DNA evidence, so that's another lie. There's no evidence, okay? But this Moroni that he encountered is supposed to be a, this, uh, a dead American Indian warrior who's the son of a guy named Mormon, hence the, supposed the Book of Mormon, Right? And, uh, but they, he referred to him as an angel. Well, first of all, you got a problem with that, that even happened and it didn't, okay? Uh, can dead people, as we saw before, become angels? No, angels are a whole separate deal, right? So the whole thing's a bunch of bullying, but you can see them begin to backpedal and start, uh, I better not say spirit because then people's glass looker hat and witchcraft and talisman and it's an angel. That sounds better, doesn't it? Right, and that's what they did. But this is from their own camp, a BYU professor says this, during this period, from 1827 to 1830, Joseph Smith abandoned the company of his former money-digging associates, but he continued to use them for, quote, religious purposes. The brown seer stone that he had previously employed in the treasure quest. His most intensive and productive use of the seer stone was in the translation of the Book of Mormon. And he also dictated, supposedly, several revelations uh, with this stone. Uh, another LDS author, Richard Wagner, found, quote, this stone, this witchcraft stone, this here stone, okay, still retained by the first presidency of the LDS church was the vehicle through which the golden plates were discovered and the medium through which the interpretation came. Thus, quote, historians, even in their own camp, have documented the continuity between Joseph's early occult practices and the origins of Mormonism. So even their own camp, they got to admit, what did the guy use to bring this whole thing about? Witchcraft. Witchcraft. Serious stuff, okay? Now, let's get a little bit more into how did he do this supposed translation using this witchcraft technique, a seer stone, peep stone, whatever you want to call it, okay? Because that's what it was. Let's take a look. The founder of the LDS Church, Joseph Smith, claimed that an angel Moroni visited him in September 1823. This so-called heavenly messenger is reported to told, tell him about these gold plates, that contained a record of the former inhabitants that were on this continent that the American Indians are supposed to be a descendant of. Again, no evidence. And uh, from the source from which they sprang. The place were said to be uh, containing the fullness of the everlasting gospel. Right? And, of course, it contained on plates language in Reformed Egyptian. And once again, it's not Egyptian. It's Reformed Egyptian. Just to further confusion, uh, apparently. But uh, we'll get to that again later. But again, he used this witchcraft stone, the seer stone. The method in which Joseph Smith translated the golden plates has been the source of the highest interest to many people who've studied the origins of the LDS movement. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, listen, while many paintings and pictures used in Mormon visitor centers 
and books depict a prayerful smith leaning over the plates. See, this is where they start to rewrite their own history. So when they show Joseph Smith, he's this clean-cut dude hopping. I don't know if you ever seen, have you ever seen, with all due respect, the actual photos of Joseph Smith back in the day? It's, just, it's like a big, giant man bun. And I can't talk too much because my hair is still back in the 80s. Right? <laughs> but today they got him, oh, he's, he's slick, he's so innocent and pure looking. And, and, with, and, and supposedly this act of him with the translation, he's just prayerfully just looking at these plates. That's not at all what's going on at all. This guy's using the peep stone, the seer stone, and the guys in his own camp who are the supposed witnesses even admit it. So they're completely rewriting their own history. Okay, let's take a look at what it was. It was a hat that he put over his face with a seer stone. That's how he brought it about. LDS historian quotes Martin Harris. Martin Harris is one of the three witnesses whose name is found in every edition of the Book of Mormon since its original edition. Harris said on record that Smith possessed a seer stone, quote, a chocolate-colored, somewhat egg-shaped stone, which the prophet found while digging a well with his brother Hiram. Roberts goes on to state that it was by using this stone that, quote, Joseph was able to translate the characters engraven on these plates. Martin Harris also uh, said... Uh, and he was one who was also doing the transcribing, one of them. So he tells, this is what happens. He says, by aid of the seer stone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet and written by Martin. So basically, he puts the witchcraft rock in the hat, slaps the hat up to his face, blocks out all light, and all of a sudden, visions are supposed to appear. The other guy's over here as he's staring in the hat, okay? And then he's supposed to write the thing down. Now, as it appears, supposedly... Right, as it appears, right, and then he calls it out. This guy, he writes it, he reads it back, supposedly, and if it was correct, supposedly it disappeared, and here came the next chunk, right? But this is from one of the three guys, historically, his account on record that this is what he did. He put the rock in the hat, his head in the hat, and supposedly this is how it went. That's witness number one. Uh, it also concurs with another guy, David Whitner, Whitmer, another one of the three witnesses that appears in the front of the Book of Mormon, and he tells how the stone produced the interpretation. Remember, the whole time, they don't have that in the artwork anymore. It's just him going like this, hmm, looking at the plates. No, he's using witchcraft. And here's, here's Whitmer's account. He says, I will now give you a description of the manner in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat, put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and in the darkness, the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, not the only one, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear, quote, Thus the Book of Mormon was translated not by any power of man. Yeah, it was used by witchcraft. So you got that part right. Smith's wife's Emma also supported Harris and Whitmer's version of the story, recalling how her husband buried his face in the hat while she was serving as his scribe. And again, what's the premise of that? That's not just weird. It's when you look at the practice back in the day, money digging, that's what people in witchcraft did. They hired themselves out to do this to find buried treasure. They used witchcraft. That's what he's using to bring about this Book of Mormon. Okay? So he got caught court. He stopped that we think, but then he used the same practice to develop this new religion called Mormonism. Joseph Smith's brother also confirmed 
that he used the hat and the seer stone, okay? Which also, it, stop and think about this. Remember, he's the whole time, according to the witnesses that are even included in the Book of Mormon, the guys that were supposed to be right there with him, while he's doing this with the, the rock and the hat and the head and the hat, right? And then they're recording it, all these different scribes, and all their accounts say that's how he did it. I like what this person said. It leads you to wonder why Smith went through the bother of digging up the alleged golden plates if he didn't even have to look at them during the translation. Think about it, right? But doesn't that sound more spiritual? They weren't paper plates. They weren't even that nifty chinette that you pay extra at the store that's supposed to be more firm to hold the gravy. No, these were golden plates. I don't mean a plate. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that's right. Interestingly enough, the article in January 1997, okay, LDS Church publication, Insign, leaves out any mention of the hat and de-emphasizes the seer stone. In fact, LDS apostle Neil Maxwell, who authored the article, he quotes another apostle, Orson Pratt, from 1874, saying that Smith relied less and less upon the seer stones and more on how he learned how to translate. So even back then, they're realizing we got to start to distance ourselves. And to where today, it's a complete perversion of their own history of how they present this process of translation. It, but the guy says this, well, it seems odd that God would provide these instruments supposedly to translate and then allow the translator, the rock, didn't allow the translator to have more freedom as the translation went on. Why didn't you just do it that way from the start? So the whole thing falls apart because they're lying. They're trying to rewrite their own history. Okay? And, uh, and again, uh, it's curious that Maxwell makes no reference to the hat. Uh, in fact, a picture in this uh, magazine, uh, they show this Oliver Cowdery, one of the primary scribes, writing down the English translation while Smith appears to be translating. There's no sign of the so-called seer stones or the hat. As the guy says, quote, what could be the reason for leaving these items out of a publicity painting except to distance the translation from the occult practices that really did characterize the Book of Mormon translation? It's called their lying, right? And they know that if people found out that the very core, this guy wasn't just involved in Freemasonry. He was a liar. He was a con artist. He was involved in witchcraft. His whole family is in witchcraft. They passed it on to him. But he's even using witchcraft techniques to come about this Book of Mormon. How many think people will join? So you better start redoing the paintings, Bob. Right? Redoing the story. Right? And one of the, and we, we do the same thing as the church. It's the old axiom, those who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. And I think one of our crimes as Christians, we don't even know our own history. Right? If we did know our own history, even recent history with the Reformation, what in the world are you doing backing up into the arms we spent 12 weeks in our last study on Roman Catholicism? Where they murdered and killed and martyred our brothers and sisters in Christ just for bringing out the Bible. Right? But the same thing, they just, oh, okay, well, okay, let's write off those folks. But this new generation, they have no clue. And these nifty paintings, and wow, he looks so clean-cut just looking at those plates. Right? And that's what they're doing. They're lying. Okay? The use of similar types of seer stones, peep stones, were also uh, called, they were quite common among believers in folk magic during the time of Joseph Smith. And there's plenty of evidence that uh, the one who Mormons claimed to use to restore the true church was quite fascinated in the occult, as were the members of his immediate family. 
okay? And they use the uh, uh, occult technique. But anyway, it says this. If so many witnesses testify to Smith's use of the hat and the magical rock, why don't the Mormon books and periodicals, for the sake of accuracy, emphasize that fact? Why do they show pictures of Smith translating from the plates and have him deep in thought rather than looking into the hat? Quote, in our opinion... Earlier accounts are embarrassing to the LDS church, and so a better, more faith-promoting account has been proposed. You know what that is? That's a fancy way of saying, we're lying through our teeth. Because if you, yeah, isn't that, can you believe that? We'll talk about a twisting of words. Okay, in fact, uh, they're flat out denying it now. Now they're really going against historical record. The 10th LDS president, Joseph Fielding Smith, quote, denied Joseph Smith even used a seer stone. Well, that's going against even the witnesses that are even mentioned in the Book of Mormon let alone Joseph Smith himself. And, and quote, the, listen to this, the information is all hearsay. And personally, I do not believe that this stone was used for that purpose. You can believe that all you want. You can believe chicken's good for you. It doesn't make it true, right? Historically, we've got the facts. We've got the court records, right? You can't hide from this. Apostle Maxwell, he said, listen to this. Here's the rationale. Okay, yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> quote, our primary focus in studying the Book of Mormon should be on the principles uh, anyway, not the process by which the book came forth. Uh, yeah, we should be uh, wondering about how it came forth because what came forth came from witchcraft. You don't want nothing to do with it. Okay, absolutely crazy. The move away from the actual facts of the translation process demonstrates LDS leaders understand, quote, that most people would balk at accepting the Book of Mormon if it was known to have been translated using a magical rock in a hat. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> He's like, yeah, no kidding, right? Now, let's get into even further witchcraft connections there. And I gave you a little teaser last week. And that's even with this whole issue with Moroni. Now, Moroni can't be true anyway. because He's supposed to be a supposedly dead person, supposedly a dead American Indian from this other, his dad named Mormon, right? But dead people don't become angels. But again, angels was done just to try to soften it because originally it was a spirit, right? And you, well, that doesn't sound good, especially with this witchcraft thing. So let's take a look. Even that name Moroni, where's that come from? Right? Well, let's take a look at that. According to the Book of Mormon, Moroni was the son of Mormon, from whom the Book of Mormon uh, is named. Before Mormon's death in battle, he passed supposedly the golden plates to this guy named his son Moroni. Moroni then finished writing on the plates and concluded the record, presumably burying them in the hill Cumorah. Uh, there in western New York, not too far where I used to live. The image of the angel Moroni, if you'll notice, is pretty much all over the Mormon uh, stuff. Blown a, he's blown a trumpet. Uh, he's commonly used as a symbol of the LDS church. He appears on some of the editions of the Book of Mormon and uh, got statues of this supposed angel, okay, uh, standing atop of LDS temples, okay? But let's take a look at this name, Moroni. And again, this is the BYU professor says, he suggests several possible origins for the name Moroni. Some say that on his first visit to the hill, Joseph saw a salamander, some say a toad. Okay, and this is part of some of the original accounts. And remember, the accounts keep changing, which we saw back in the first study. Which account? But some accounts say he didn't, he, the first thing he saw on this hill was a salamander, some say a toad, in the hole that he was led to that supposedly had the plates in it. And then that this salamander or toad transformed itself into a spirit, and the spirit... Struck Joseph Smith three times, which is an occult thing, by the way. 
Now, it's interesting. You go, well, that's strange. What happened to this? I thought it was, remember, remember which account was it? I, I thought it was Jesus. No, I thought it was the Father in Jesus. No, I thought it was an angel. I thought it was this Moroni guy. Which, which is it? Right? But anyway, so the original ones is salamander toad-looking thing that was in the hole, then it pops out and becomes a spirit and smacks you three times. That's weird. Okay? But Moroni and salamander are consistent with magic or witchcraft associations. Watch this. Early 19th century Americans, the name Moroni uh, is simply an anagram for I moron. Right? I moron, you just switch the I, put the I at the front. He just put it, Joseph put it at the back. Okay, it was a widely published word for a being which poisons. Also, a poisonous salamander was moron in the scientific text of the day. And occult texts used salamanders to illustrate the elemental spirit of fire. And moron was also the name of magic invocations. So once again, dude, you didn't really stray too far to come up with this name, right? And according to the same guy, moron is an incantation name used for treasure seeking. So you just took this old witchcraft spirit name, right? And then you... Did your little thing. In fact, we weren't even there yet. I keep getting ahead of myself. There's just so much. And again, it just gets worse as you go. But you're going to see that he just took whole chunks of the Bible, whatever. He took Bible names, and he just like would change. Oh, that one says uh, Jacob. Well, I'll just use uh, Jacob. Uh, you know, he just, I'm just, I don't know if that was the exact example. But you're going to see, he just takes it and he changes one letter. Or he leaves a letter off. Or whatever. And it's, ooh, 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 right? It's the same thing with here. This is an incantation name. Uh, Moroni was supposed to have appeared after a failed treasure excursion when Joseph prayed that night, seeking some sort of a messenger. But the messenger sought uh, was supposed to help him get treasure. It wasn't until much later that Moroni became an angel instead of a treasure guardian. Remember, that's what they were doing. This is why they were using the peep stones, the money digger, And because the belief, the superstitious belief back in the day was that spirits guarded treasure and not only guarded treasure and kept you from finding it, but it kept it lower so that you could never find it. And so the money digger would use witchcraft and occult techniques to locate the treasure and the spirit and deal with it so you can get it. And that's even embedded in this name uh, Moroni. But I like what this is. Mormon scholar Hugh Nibley noted that the prevalence of names in the Book of Mormon with the root more, M-O-R, he suggested that the root may be, that's right, Tom, Egyptian. And it means beloved. Yeah, whatever. You guys, man, you guys just go, oh, well. But that's still the tip of the iceberg. Listen to all these different things. Now, again, he, he's picking from here, he's picking from there, he's grabbing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and he's putting this whole thing together. He's ripping it off from the Bible, he's doing this, even, we're going to see in a second, contemporary sources. He's taking some Freemasonry and all this stuff. He's, which... Witchcraft is embedded just like Freemasonry through and through. Let's, let me give you a couple more examples. Again, this is from the same BYU professor, Professor Quinn. Uh, Joseph's visit to Moroni, again, was linked to the art of necromancy. Again, remember September, September 21st when he had his, his first visit? Uh, that's the autumn equinox, which is linked with necromancy and the occult. That's the best time you're supposed to get uh, an uh, appearance. Uh, the Mormon church, listen, the Mormon church was organized on April 6th. And believe it or not, check it out, many Mormons claim that was Jesus' birthday. What's interesting is there's ample evidence that Joseph Smith chose this day because it was a day 
that his strong astrological beliefs indicated would be a good day to set out on a new venture. Next one. Also, almost every wedding that Joseph Smith had, and he had a bunch, uh, was on a day that was astrologically significant for, quote, good for romance and love. And Brigham Young even claimed that Joseph Smith tried to introduce astrology into the Mormon church doctrine even back in his Nauvoo days. So that's on record too. LDS doctrine, again, is not just obsessed with seer stones, right? Some of them, the later ones today, they're just trying to whatever. But they got a major problem. They have another book called the DNC or the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is, you got the Book of Mormon, you got some other additional ones. We'll get to it, Lord willing, later. Okay, but, and I checked this out even today. I said, you got to be kidding me. Are you serious? They really have that in there? Listen to this. Seer stone, remember, this is the witchcraft thing. The DNC claims, quote, we each will have our own seer stone and the earth will become a giant seer stone. Well, that makes it all acceptable, doesn't it? Because we all get one now. And it's not witchcraft. It's okay. And the earth becomes a big seer stone. It's all great. What? I went to check this up today again. And I'm going, you got, and I came across this blog. It's, it's a Mormon blog. And right there at the very top, there's this person asking the obvious question. Can somebody please tell me how in the world the DNC says that the earth is going to become a giant seer stone? What is up with that? And you know what the responses were below that primarily? You know, we really should focus on more important things than <laughs> the same thing. I couldn't believe it, right? Just saw that today, okay? But that's, again, many uh, Book of Mormon names also have parallels to the occult, to magic, and things of that nature. Uh, as we saw, again, with uh, the word Mormon, she-monster, devil's gate, it's a spirit or specter. Back in the day, of course, they say, nope, Tom, it's reformed Egyptian. It means more good. No, don't think so. Uh, Alma... Alma's a big name that they use. That's supposed to be a Nephite prophet. Well, it just so happens that Alma means soul, soul in Spanish, and Almazim was a magical spirit that was a giver of treasure. Hmm. Drop a couple words. You're used to this because you're doing that with witchcraft, seeking treasure, and then you slap that into your own book. Uh, Nephi is related to a common Jewish Kabbalist uh, term for spirit, uh, Nephis, he just dropped a little bit there. Nephi's Nephis. Kabbalists identify the Nephis as spirits that can uh, be called forth through necromancy. Also, they teach that Cain, this is kind of a weird thing. Well, there's a lot is, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, that Cain became what's called Master Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, which you might get into later. Well, that just happens to be taken from uh, ancient magic, that belief system. So that's nothing new. Okay. Also, the three degrees of glory. We'll get into this later, right? Because you got to work your way up, and hopefully, you can make your way all the way to the top. That's why you got to go on the bike tour. You got to go on the temple thing. Because if you want to make it to the top, where you get to be your own god, your wife gets to be a goddess, and you get to forever populate your own planet with spirit babies. Once again, my wife don't want to do that. Uh, but anyway, it's not true. But they have a tiered system, and it just happens to be three. Okay. And, but guess what? Even that was not original. That is demonstrated to come from a guy named Emanuel Swedenborg. Remember him? That's where we started. You could have gone all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You will be like God. The liar in Genesis 3. That that's where we started historically in our history of the New Age movement. Right? Emanuel Swedenborg. Well, that's what he taught. And, quote, Smith knew who he was and read his books. 
So even the celestial kingdom thing from Mormonism is nothing new. It's one from the, the founders, uh, the promoters of the New Age movement. And it's also in Kabbalist teachings. Uh, they have three heavens, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the infernal. Smith, all he did was change the name of the last one. Because infernal don't sound no good, apparently. And then he, apparently, it's like, I don't know if he, it, was, it was a long day or something. But uh, he didn't put a whole, apparently too much thought in it. So, okay, celestial, terrestrial. I just dropped the R slap in an L. How about celestial? That sounds good. What do you think, Mike? You think you're, you know, it's like the guy, you ever go into the guy? It, it had to been like 4.59. You had a minute to go before you got to go home, right, before 5 o'clock. Right? And here comes the next thing you got to name down that list, right? And here it is, right? And uh, it, it, it's, it, you know, of course, it's the fly. And you're sitting there going like, really? That's all the better you can do? You must have looked at that thing, looked at the clock. It took off, and you said, okay, it's a fly. Let's go home. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I've always wondered about that. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> so he didn't make the thing. It's crazy. He's ripping this off even from a guy from New Age, right? He's grabbing from everywhere he can to come up with this stuff, okay? The fact is, this guy grabbed the Book of Mormon. It literally is a hodgepodge of everything you could think of, even contemporary stuff during his time. And it's obvious, okay? It's completely obvious. Let me give you another example. Let's take a look at this. Where did Mormonism come from? Is it based on literal events, or did Joseph Smith draw inspiration from somewhere else? Smith's first vision was first recorded in 1832, but others in the area had published similar visions years before Smith did. They were stirred by a passage of scripture, went into the woods in the morning, knelt to pray but couldn't speak, felt that others were around, seized by a power, then despair, then weakness, felt near to death, saw some remarkable light, like above the brightness of the sun, saw God and Jesus in bodily form with indescribable glory, told all churches were corrupt, more specifically, that their professors were corrupt, and there was more information that couldn't be written. Of these visionaries, one was a well-known preacher who visited Smith's community, one met with Smith's family, and one had his vision published in the Smith's local newspaper all before Joseph recorded his vision. Smith also claimed that he had received the Golden Plates, a record of the ancient Nephite people, from the angel Moroni in 1827. That same year, an English translation of a story called The Golden Pot was published, about a man who received a record of the ancient Atlantean people from the spirit Lindhorst. The author had even been promoted in Smith's local newspaper. The story's similarities include, both men are meditating when they see a great light, get shocked, and meet a messenger in a vision. Both have three visions in one evening. Both are called to transcribe records from an old civilization and are promised a seer device. Both messengers are the descendants and archivists of their civilizations, are called Prince of the Spirits, and can appear in the form of an amphibian. Going to retrieve the records, both men encounter an evil power, are chastised for not being serious enough, and are told to wait one year to see if they will be allowed to receive them. Both visit vast chambers with treasures, breastplates, dazzling light from an unknown source, a library, and tripods with Egyptian artifacts. Both men are injured by evil spirits, pass their final test, and get access to their records on the fall equinox. The story content of the Book of Mormon, published in 1830, could easily have been inspired by a book called View of the Hebrews, first published in 1823 in Poultney, Vermont. Both books are about Hebrews leaving the Old World, sailing to the uninhabited Americas, and becoming the ancestors of the Native Americans. They split into two people groups, one barbarous and one civilized. There is a change from monarchy to republic. 
a Messiah figure visits, the Christian gospel is preached in the Americas, whole chapters of the book of Isaiah are quoted. After long wars, the barbarous eventually destroy the civilized, but there is a lost book of God left buried in a hill. Oliver Cowdery, a witness to the Book of Mormon, was from Poultney, Vermont, and met Joseph just after the second printing of View of the Hebrews. Later, Smith even quoted and cited the book in an article. So all the necessary building blocks of Smith's new religion were close at hand, and even though he supplied plenty of his own details, it's fairly obvious that they're hung on the framework of these sources. So is it more likely that Smith's experiences were really genuine, or that they developed from his own absorbent imagination? If that were to take place uh, today, you know what would happen? He would go to jail for plagiarism. That's why, getting further, even in my own research in this, and I knew it was bad, but I used to think, man, this guy was a great storyteller. He's not even a storyteller. He's a story ripoff. Okay? When you ta he's taken it from everything. He's taken it from contemporary writing. Give me g the golden pot. You could at least said the silver cup or something, but the golden plates. You say, come on, man. You've got to be kidding me, right? Taking a little bit of this water, and again, including Freemasonry you saw last week, also with witchcraft, okay? He's just grabbing it from all kinds of stuff. This is where they came from. Uh, as a young man, Joseph Smith not only uh, worked on his family farm, uh, but again, he worked in with witchcraft. Again, we saw with the seer stones, but also in, quote, blessing crops, finding lost articles, predicting future events or prophesying or using divining rods, all of its occult techniques. Most historians, Mormon or not, who work at the sources, listen, this is their words, not mine, accept as fact Joseph Smith as his career as a, quote, village magician. And that's in history, right? And it's interesting to note that as early as 1828, members of the, listen to this, Methodist Church were forced to make a decision with regard to Joseph Smith. Smith had taken steps to join the Methodist Church, but they felt that his dealings in witchcraft made him unfit to be a member. So they knew him and his family's background and his practices. He actually tried to join the Methodist Church, okay, uh, in 1828, and uh, he said, uh, they said, absolutely not, dude. You're into witchcraft. Right? Now, here's what's weird. Now you've got another problem. It certainly is strange that Joseph Smith would try to join the Methodist Church because we saw in the first study, this flies in the face of his first claim that he supposedly had his first vision when he was supposed to be between 14 and 15 years old, which he stated emphatically at that time that there were two personages who warned them that he should not join any church and they were all wrong. So then why are you later trying to join the Methodist Church when you tell us that from the get-go as a young boy you were told not to join any, but then later you did, and then they rejected you because of which? The whole thing is wild, folks. With the mounting evidence of Joseph Smith's involvement in witchcraft, members of the Mormon Church are faced with a weighty decision. Listen to how this is put. Quote, Can they accept as a prophet a man who was involved in occultic practices at the very time he was supposed to have been receiving so-called revelations from God. I don't think that's good ground to be on. And as one former follower of Joseph Smith expressed, quote, a person must come out from the company of Joseph the sorcerer. Ooh, interesting. 
Now you know why they're doing a really good uh, rewriting, repainting, revisualizing campaign, right? But unless they want to tear down all those artif- uh, the edifices, the temples and stuff, it's awfully hard to, uh, to hide it because on their edifices, you see signs of pentagrams and Freemasonry. Oh, by the way, Freemasonry. Remember we saw Freemasonry last week with the beehive? Uh, Reed and Debbie were texting me pictures. They're on their way up to Canada for a conference this weekend, and uh, they were giving me pictures of even on their highway signs. Guess what's on off to the left? It's a beehive. Beehive's a huge thing in Freemasonry. It's all over the place. And then, of course, they had to give me the picture of this Kolob Mountain. <laughs> so, so I said, well, if you find Pentagram Peak, let me know. Send me that picture, too. Uh, but uh, anyway, but it's, it's true. It's unfortunate. It's there. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, people don't learn their own history, even Mormons, or they're encouraged not to. Notice the response of the presidents, the leadership, and even from the blog that I saw today. When the facts are brought out, how are the people trained to respond? Well, yeah, whatever, but we need to just focus on, you know, the good stuff and how sad that is. That's a cult. That's a cult when you can't ask questions or when something comes up, you're told to just forget about it, okay? Lord willing, next time we're going to actually maybe, most likely, Tom, get back in that workbook for a little bit anyway, as we're going to take a look at basically, basically that leads up Joseph Smith up to his death. Again, after his death, we saw before they went into a split. One group goes to the reform the ones that we're more familiar with, Brigham Young, they go out to Utah, okay, and, uh, and then they begin to form their leadership. We'll talk about some of that leadership structure, some of their basic beliefs. Then we're going to get into, of course, their authority. This Book of Mormon, what they believe is better than what we got. And at that point, we're probably going to get into, more specifically, the golden plates. And what in the world is this reformed Egyptian thing? And what about this thing that he supposedly translated from Egyptian? I'm sure he got that pretty accurate because they found it. You know how much he got right? Yeah, it rhymes with zero, but we'll get to that uh, <laughs> in, a, in a future study. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, Let's take a a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, The Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? 
Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest, we've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail, and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, 
if he would grant them what's called a pardon. Out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.